Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Today's sermon is by Tom Reed. It was preached in 1999 at Seabreeze Camp Meeting in Hope Sound, Florida. It's titled, Living with No Regrets. I know you will enjoy this message. I want to thank you. This will be my last service. I want to thank you for the honor of being called to Hope Sound Camp Meeting. It's such an honor. Uh, these are sacred grounds. They're hallowed memories that give a holy fragrance over this entire area. One of the greatest honors I ever had in my life was a number of years ago when Brother Heron came to me and said, Tom, I'd like for you to serve on Hope Sound Board. And I did. Spent about ten years serving on that board working with Brother Heron and others, I found a verse of Scripture that said, He who walketh with wise men will himself become wise, and I need all of the help I can get. So I feel that I've been amply repaid by associating with people like Brother Heron and Brother French and Brother Palm and uh, Doc Yoakum and, and people like that. And I'm serious about that. I mean that with all of my heart. <clears throat> but it's been a wonderful time. I've enjoyed so much the ministry of Brother Fay. I know more about Brother Fay than I do knowing him. This is the first time I've ever had the privilege of working with him. But uh, Kenneth Fay is a man whom God has used and is using, not only in America, but around the world. Brother Fay, it's been an honor to work with you and Sister Fay. And then, of course, Albert Barr. He's like Amos Hand. There's only one. Glad God made him. Glad he wasn't twins. Sister Barr would probably be the loudest amen in here for that. But... Uh, I thought as he was giving that wonderful, rich Bible lesson this morning, uh, you know, animals sometimes are so much smarter than we are. Watch a bunch of cows grazing, and they'll eat for a while, and they'll go lay down and chew the cud. Now, some of you women chew, but not that way. Uh, but they, they'll go chew the cud, you know, and belch it back up and chew it until they can get it down into the right stomach and it's digested. And I thought as Brother Barr was concluding Rather than have another service, we should just have an hour of music and uh, chew on what he had given us. Uh, so simply and yet profoundly, uh, and usually profound things are simple. Uh, I, you know, one of the things that I've noticed about great men is they don't know they're great, and they have the ability to take complicated and complex things and bring them down so that dumbbells like me can understand it and uh, enjoy it as well as they do. But <clears throat> thank you again so much. And then I think of all of the kind deeds that uh, have been done for my wife and I while we have been here. Uh, Sister Brian has just gone out of the way, Sister Ailes, to make sure that everything was taken care of and comfortable and 
we came in and found some fruit at our door and found a loaf of fresh baked bread there. And uh, that, that doesn't happen at my house. Uh, you, you think I'm joking. I, my, my wife is like Howard Hendricks's children. Howard Hendricks said he had five children. And uh, he's an early morning person like Dave Fuller. Uh, he gets up and he's out and said he was trying to get one of his daughters to get up one morning and watch the sun rise with him. She said, Daddy, if God would have wanted people to watch the sun rise, he'd have had it come up at a decent time. <laughs> and, and my wife thinks the sun comes up at 11. So uh, anyway, it's, it's been so good, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I prayed earnestly about uh, the message today. Actually, I have two messages on my heart. Worked here with Brother Scott, Dr. Noel Scott, back several years ago. And uh, Brother Scott is about the only fellow I can think of in America, a few places in foreign countries, that asked me to repeat a message. Uh, most people tell me after I get through, don't bother coming back to that again. You gave us all we need. But, uh, Noel, I was praying about uh, preaching on not for sale, but don't feel that that's what the Lord would have me share. So will you turn in your Bibles to St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. While you're finding the scripture, I want to say thank you, too, to each one of you who are a friend to me. And I mean that. Friends, the older I get, the more precious they become. I cherish my friends. I miss those who have gone to heaven, and I cherish those who remain. And a friend in need is a friend indeed. I've got a little about a four-inch plaque, plastic plaque. I don't even know where I got it, don't know where it came from, but it's been in my study for years and years. It simply says, explain not. Friends don't need it, and enemies won't believe it. And so I try to live by that, but thank God for friends. All right, if you found the scripture, would you stand as we share together from God's Word, St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, beginning to read at verse 18. Then said he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, Till the whole was leavened. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. 
There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. Father, thank you again for the consciousness of thy presence. All of us who love thee would readily acknowledge that we're unworthy of any of thy blessings. But thou dost so richly bestow them again and again and again. And all we can do is simply say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We do love you today. In the few moments that remain in this morning's service, will you quicken the messenger by the power of thy Holy Spirit, grant to him an illuminated mind and loosened lips and a burning heart, and grant, O God, to this wonderful congregation the ministry of thy Spirit, that they may have ears that hear, eyes that see, hearts that believe, and a will that simply says, Yes, Lord, I will. For all accomplished thereby, we will bow our hearts and give thee praise. In the lovely name of Jesus, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In verse 28, the first clause, there is this statement by Jesus that I want to lift out of the scripture text, our lesson, and use as a text. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One poet has written, the saddest words of tongue or pen are these sad words it might have been. Someone else has said that we need to learn from the mistakes of others because we won't live long enough to make all of them ourselves. But the Bible, when addressing the same matter, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of living with no regrets. Brother Leonard Sankey said to me last night that Sister Carrie Boyer had gone to be with the Lord. Many of us, though we may not have known Sister Boyer personally, knew of her. She had been a missionary for over 50 years. Her picture has been in almost every issue of the uh, missionary paper published by Faith Missions. And uh, Brother Sankey was telling me that uh, she was found, perhaps had been dead for 24 hours when they found her. They had to kind of break into the home, and she was sitting in her chair. One of the last things that she had done was to write a check to Faith Missions. What a wonderful way to leave this world. What a wonderful way to leave this world. Some of you folks have got money, and I do not envy you having it at all, because my Heavenly Father has paid my bills for 50 years, and He's done a good job of it. But I just want you to know that no matter how your investments multiply and, and uh, increase, 
that all you're ever going to have is what you invest in God's kingdom and God's work. Billy Graham was the first one I heard say that he never saw a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse in a funeral procession. And I think he's right. I think he's right. Dr. W.G. Heslop was a great Nazarene missionary, educator, teacher, writer, wrote riches from Revelation, diamonds from Daniel, pearls from the prophets, uh, several books like that. A great. And uh, when Dr. Heslop had been preaching for more than 50 years, the Nazarenes honored him at a dinner one evening. The general superintendents were there and others were there. And they honored him at a dinner. And Dr. Heslop addressed them. And his subject was, if I was starting over again. And after it was all over, one of the generals and his wife was walking down the, were walking down the sidewalk. And uh, the general said to his wife, he said, you know, honey, he said, the doctor doesn't have to have any regrets. He did exactly what he said he would do if he was starting over again. We can't all say that as we go to the Bible and look at men that are there whose stories are told and we're still reading them, I think, perhaps of one of the greatest figures of all ancient history, Moses himself, the emancipator of God's people from Israel, the man who spoke face to face with God, the man to whom God gave his law. And yet in Numbers 20, God gives us the failure of Moses and God calls it unbelief. Fellows like me might just say, well, he was kind of impatient because I am, by nature, an impatient person. I want everything done yesterday. But God said concerning Moses, because of his impatience, God said that that was unbelief. And God refused to permit Moses to enter the promised land. He showed it to him, and then he conducted his funeral, and he buried him. But the greatest mistake and the greatest failure in Moses' life was that act of impatience that uh, God said was evidence of his not believing God. I think of Balaam. The backslidden prophet of the Old Testament, he was a prophet of God. The Bible says so. He prayed and God answered. But like so many others, he loved the wages of unrighteousness. And God even had to rebuke him with the voice of a donkey speaking to him. But I, I think of Balaam. Balaam gave one of the most beautiful funeral texts that I have ever used and preached from. Balaam said, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. And I want you to know, unsaved friend, if you're here this morning, that God's people die differently than the unsaved do. The bottom line of life is, when I leave this world, am I ready to meet God? Is my heart clear? The greatest mistake that Balaam made was loving money more than he loved God. I think of King David, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist and the sweet singer of Israel. And David's terrible tragedy, and I only have time just to barely touch on these this morning, but David's greatest tragedy came when he became at ease in Zion. Remember? Ahab, uh, pardon me, uh, the general Abner and others, the army of Israel had gone out and something even perhaps more importantly than the armies going out and David's place as king was to have been at the head of the army. But the ark of God went. 
The ark of God was symbolic of the presence of God. David permitted himself to be separated from the presence of the Lord and fell into terrible sin, adultery, and murder, and brought shame and reproach upon himself and upon God's kingdom. Oh, can I make a plea this morning to some of you who, like myself, am getting older and, and you find that physical energy and strength perhaps is not what it one time was. Don't permit yourself to become lax and indifferent and casual and careless in spiritual matters. Seek God more fervently in your old age than you've ever sought Him before. Dr. Wesley Duell is doing a tremendous ministry with his writings, but I wonder if his praying isn't doing more. Dr. Duell has given himself to a ministry of prayer. But I wonder if David's greatest regret was not his failure with Bathsheba and with Uriah, but I wonder if it wasn't his failure with his children. David must have inspired Benjamin Spock. He was the permissive parent. I love children. We were married 11 years before we had any. The 20 years that Faith and Jim were in our home were the happiest years of my life. I loved it when the house resounded with chatter and noise and clamor and clatter and feet coming and going and running. It was a thrilling time. Oh, there are times that exasperate you to tears and you almost feel like that you're backslidden when you have to discipline them, correct them, but when you finally put them down and they go to bed and you go there and stand in the door and look at them sleeping so peacefully and sweetly and everything's worthwhile then. Everything's worthwhile then. But David lost his children. His own sins were visited upon his children. I thank God for my heritage, not only my spiritual heritage, but I thank God for my human heritage. I was a sharecropper's son, southwestern Tennessee. Dad left rolling Tennessee hills when I was a boy of seven, went to Chicago and worked in a factory as, as a laborer all of his life, six boys and one girl. But I thought, who was it this morning? Brother Barr was talking about the trouble that a lot of people have in coming to God because of the image that they have of a human father, a human father that was cold and dysfunctional, did not love them. My father was not a Christian, but oh, there's never been a time in my life, never, when I did not know that I was loved, that mom and dad loved me, and they proved it again and again and again. Sometimes they proved it with a switch, but they proved it. There was no question in our house about who was boss. I had people tell me, and I, I preached this way all the 43 years, ask the Morgans, they, they grew up there with their kids, and I had people tell me, uh, when my children were growing up, your children are going to hate you, they're going to rebel against you, because I let them express themselves, I let them be children, and when they disagreed with me, we talked about it, but when the line was drawn, they knew that there was a time to hush, and they know who was boss. You say, preacher, that's cruel. No, that's biblical. You can't love your child and not discipline your child. Because the Bible tells us that God chasteneth those that He loveth. 
All right, I don't want to get tied up there, but I think Moses' greatest regret was his failure as a parent. I think of his own son, Solomon, the wisest man other than Jesus Christ who ever lived. No other man has ever been so honored by God. Solomon was not only so wise that people came from everywhere in the world to hear him, but he was so rich that silver in his day was counted as pebbles. They didn't even bother counting it. He'd make Bill Gates look like a pauper. That's right. No one was ever as honored by God as Solomon was. And yet, in his old age, his wives turned his heart from God until I believe that the book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon in a backslidden condition. One of the key phrases in that book is under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. What is under the sun, preacher? It's man without God. Solomon expressing himself, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. And I want to tell you something this morning, beloved, and particularly those of you that are in the workaholic stage of your life. I admire people for working. I hate laziness. I don't believe you can be lazy and be a Christian. But on the other hand, be sure you balance that. Put first things first. That home of yours is first. That child of yours is first. You'll never get blessed with that bank account. You'll never be blessed with that new car. You'll never be blessed with that palatial mansion. Remember the song, the country song that I quoted already in the meeting? Money can't buy back your youth when you're old, nor a friend when you're lonely, nor a love that's grown cold. The wealthiest person is a pauper at times compared to the man with a satisfied mind. When we started the church in Chicago, I was a working pastor and I worked for a man by the name of Steve Bennett. This was back in 1955-56. Steve Bennett at that time was worth $55 million. He was one of the most miserable, wretched old men I have ever known in my life. I mean that. If I ever saw an illustration of riches not satisfying an individual, it was, satisfy- it was illustrated in the life of Steve Bennett who owned Bennett Industries. Money, friend, can't satisfy your heart. Money can't bring peace to your troubled soul. Money can't bring love into your home. It won't work that way. My son-in-law, who is a young professional, and many of you know them, chafes many times because he's not making as much money as some of his peers are. But John is investing himself and his two little boys In the busiest of seasons, he takes time to come home and get down in the floor and play trains with them and take them places and do things with them. And I've assured him again and again, John, that's wisdom. Ten years from now, you can make all of the money that you want to, but those boys are going to be gone. I don't know why I'm emphasizing this this morning, but I really feel it on my heart. Uh, You are blessed and plagued here in this area. When I was on the board many years ago, Jim Olson told me, he said, Brother Reed, and this this has been a number of years ago because I've been off the board for more than 10 years. But he said, Brother Reed, he said, I can take you to 75 successful entrepreneurs in the Hope Sound area that came down here to go to Bible school and prepare for ministry, and they started making money. 
Now, some of you are here this morning, and I don't mean that you're out of the will of God because you were probably mistaken about a call in the first place, and you found yourself, and God has blessed you, and that's good. Use what He has given you for His kingdom's sake. But out of that 75, I'm sure that there were some that missed the mind of God. They got their eyes on things, and they got their eyes on money. Money will never satisfy you. I think of the rich young ruler who is another illustration of this. He had it all and he had it all together. He came running to Jesus and was thirsting for something that would satisfy his heart. When Jesus put his finger on his point of need, he again put the material ahead of the spiritual and went away sad. I've got a lot of things in my files. If I ever get all organized, I'll be awesome. Uh, but among those things, there's an account of Howard Hughes' funeral. Howard Hughes, if I remember correctly, was our first billionaire. Some of you older folks remember him back in the days when Hughes uh, was in the news. But he became eccentric in his old age. Died. They said when he died, his hair was long down his back. His fingernails were like bird's claws. Got to where he wouldn't take baths and he stunk and it was hard to get people to take care of him. When Howard Hughes died, there was an 11-minute private ceremony and he lies in an unmarked grave. Only certain people know where he's even buried today. He, like the rich young ruler, came up against things. And fail to mind God. I think of Judas. No man was as ever, ever as honored of mankind as, as Judas was of Jesus Christ. It was a distinct act of honor to dip in the dish as Jesus did at the Last Supper. And I think what he was doing is he was reaching out to Judas and saying, Judas, you don't have to do this. You don't have to be the one that betrays me, Judas. I still love you. But Judas turned his back on the Savior's love and went out and hanged himself and his name has become the epitome of a traitor and a backstabber and, and a deceiving friend. Then I think of Peter, that great leader of the apostolic band, that mighty preacher of Pentecost. But I wonder if Peter didn't struggle all of his life when he was by himself remembering that point of failure, when those three times the night that Jesus was being tried, he said, I don't know him, I don't know him, and swore and said, I don't know him. The cock crew and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Oh, he was fully restored. Jesus commissioned him to do what he did became one of the glowing figures of the New Testament, but I'm convinced that all of Peter's life he was hounded by I fail the Master when he needed me the most. I fail the Master when he needed me the most. Dr. Don Owens, one of the retired general superintendents of the Church of the Nazarene, I heard him when he was first installed, and he told a story from the Vietnam War that I've since read other places, but it thrilled me told how the two fellows who had grown up as buddies all of their lives joined the service together, and the military has the buddy system where if you join with a buddy, they will keep you together through basic training, and all of your assignments you'll be assigned together, and that's the way it was with these boys. From grade school on, they had been inseparable. They went to Vietnam. One night they were out on patrol and caught in a trap, and finally after the uh, machine gun fire died down and the flares went out, they got back behind their... Uh, bulwarks and, and they were kind of recu recouping uh, their fellows, finding out who was there and who wasn't. The 
commanding officer came down the trenches where the fellows was and he said, I'm giving a direct order that nobody is to leave these trenches until I say so. But this fellow, as he began to search around, realized that his buddy wasn't there. And when no one was looking, he slipped out of the trench and began to crawl through that dark jungle grass. And the enemy detected movement and the flares went off again and the machine guns began to chatter and the uh, shells began to explode and our American fellows back where they were answered the fire viciously and drove those men back. And in a few minutes this fellow came struggling through the grass with his friend on his back and he rolled him over into the ditch and he fell down beside him. The commanding officer came over and he said, Soldier, I'm going to court-martial you. I gave a direct order. Nobody was to leave these trenches without my permission. He said, sir, I don't care what you do to me. He said, he's dead now, but he was alive when I got out there. And when I rolled him over, he looked at me and said, I knew you had come. James Vaughn, the musician, publisher of Christian music, had a son that got involved in crime, was sentenced to a long prison sentence. Mr. Vaughn died while his son was in prison. He requested permission, was granted permission by the governor to attend his father's funeral. He went to his father's funeral handcuffed to a state trooper. When they got there, the trooper took him in through the back door and they stood back behind the curtains watching the proceedings as hundreds and hundreds of people came and paid tribute to this man who was widely known and greatly loved. And after it was all over and the crowd had left, the boy said to the trooper, he said, I want to go out and see my dad. And he said, my father was a fine Christian man. And he said, I don't want to go out there handcuffed to a state trooper. He said, would you take those handcuffs off of me? Let Just let me go and stand by Dad's casket said, I promise you, I won't run. I won't try to get away. The trooper said, all right, son, I'm going to let you go. But he said, I'm going to be standing back here with my revolver in my hand. He said, if you try to run, I'm going to drop you. He said, I won't run. And he went out and stood by his father's casket, looked down into that worn face that had been truly Christian, that had loved him, prayed for him for years, and his heart broke. And he knelt down there by his dad's casket and prayed through and came back to God, went back to his prison cell and sat down and wrote the song, Praise the Lord. There is mercy in heaven, in that land where the sun never sets. For our Savior forgives not as mortals, but when He Jesus forgives, He forgets. I thank God that we have a Savior like that this morning. But let me quickly turn and close. I'm supposed to be speaking to you about living with no regrets, and I've been talking about the regrets that these individuals had, but there were some people in the Bible that didn't have any regrets when they left this world. And I start with one that you probably wouldn't put up very high on your list. A little fellow that went to hear Jesus preach one day. Had a good mother and she packed him a lunch. And Been there for quite a while and Jesus' loving heart was concerned about that crowd, and he said to his disciples, let's feed them. They said, we haven't got anything to eat. Andrew said, there's a little boy here. it has got five loaves and two fishes. 
You know the story well, how that Jesus took that and blessed it and broke it and fed that great multitude and picked up 12 baskets full. And I believe that as long as that little boy lived, the Bible doesn't tell us anything else about him. But as long as he lived, he'll always remember when he's just a little lad, he gave Jesus all that he had. You know, we've lost that out of our Christian worship. We have become sophisticated. You computer whizzes, you've got it all figured out and you know what all the answers are and what we're all supposed to do. But David said, I'm not going to offer sacrifice unto the Lord unless it costs me something. Remember when he was buying the thrashing floor? We've lost our spirit of sacrifice. You say, well, preacher, I'm giving more than I've ever given before and you've got more left than you ever had before. doesn't matter how much you give, how much have you got left? Levi Whistner, my dear friend, back when his children were small and he was in evangelistic work, was leaving for a meeting one day. And uh, he had bought his ticket and packed his suitcases and given Sister Whistner $5. That was all he had, literally every penny that he had to feed the children while he was gone in the revival meeting. And he'd hug them all and kiss them. And Dan, his son, who was just a little boy at that time, he's still a short little fellow, but just a little boy at that time. And they'd all cried and hugged one another. And finally, Levi said, I've got to go. And he picked up his suitcases and started walking down the street to go to the bus station. Didn't even have money to take a city bus down to the main bus station. Was walking down there. Levi said, Tom, I'd gone about three blocks, and I heard somebody running behind me. And he said, I turned around and looked. He said, here came little Dan running just as hard as he could run. He said, I put my suitcases down and Danny ran up and threw his arms around my knees and I reached down and picked him up and I hugged him and kissed him and I said, now Danny, you, you go home. You be the man while dad's gone. You take your mom and the girls and I'll be back in a few days. And so he said, I put him down and said, dad's got to go. I said, you go on, Dan. And he said, Danny started to leave and then he put his grubby little hand down in his pocket and pulled something out and thrust it at me. And he said, it ain't much, Dad, but he said, it's all I got. And he said, I took it. Wept. As those chubby little legs ran back down the street and there was a thin dime in my hand. He said, I stuck it in my pocket. And I got to the city where the meeting was to take place down at the big city terminal few years ago because you can make a phone call for a dime then. He said, I took that dime and dropped it in the pay phone and called the pastor and told him where I was. And he came and got me. Have you given Jesus all you have this morning? My in-laws gave their lives to the ministry of the gospel. One of the reasons why he was such a great home missionary pastor is because they gave it all they had. We had the wonderful privilege of taking care of them the last couple of years that he lived and then four years after he died while she lived. And again and again he would say to his wife, Mommy, did we do our best? Did we do our best? Could we have given more? And he was conscious up until about ten minutes before he died. And we were there in the hospital room with him. The family was all there and the last thing that I remember him saying, he looked at his good wife and said, Mommy, I've preached about heaven all my life, and now I'm going to heaven. And closed his eyes and went home to be with Jesus.
I think of another individual in similar circumstances. Remember that little widow lady? Went to church one day and dropped in her two mites. There might have been fellows in our terminology who dropped in a check for 10000 a 100000 Wish I could do that. I really do. I've always wished I had money so I could give it away. But somebody went to church that day and dropped in two pennies. And it caught the attention of the master. He said, this widow woman's given more than all of the rest. Because they've given out of her abundance. But she's given of her living. Living with no regrets. I hurry. I'm almost through. The woman that had the issue of blood, remember her? Pushing her way through the crowd. If I can just touch him. If I can just touch him. If I can just touch him. Is there hope for a sinner like me if I can just touch him? She touched him. She was healed. Said her friend, you can touch him this morning. You can touch him this morning. You can touch him this morning. Sister Morgan had a brother-in-law. I had the privilege of preaching his funeral last year. There are some men that think they're tough, and there are some men that are really tough. Mac Green was one of the toughest men I've ever known in my life. Was a prisoner of war during World War II for about three and a half years. Was on the death march in Europe. Ordinarily weighed about 200 pounds. Came out of the prison camp weighing less than 100. And a great revival broke out in the church that I was saved in back in 1949. Brother Flexen was there as the evangelist. We had a little lady that attends my church now that was in that church then. And she had called in Mac and Gracie's home every week for a solid year and invited them to come to church. And they promised her they would and never came. She told me one time, she said, the last time that I went, I knocked on the door and stepped back in the shadows. I hoped they wasn't home. I'd been there so many times. I was embarrassed to ask them again. But they were home and she asked them again. And they said, we will. They'd said that 50 other times. But anyway, a prayer meeting. The prayer meeting before this revival began, I think it stands in my mind, yet after 50 years, as one of the greatest services I was ever in in my life, for two hours the glory of God filled that little basement that we had been worshiping in. People wept and shouted and ran and jumped and praised God and, and just simply sat in awe of God's presence. And Pauline's sister Gracie was back there with her First baby, a little girl, and she sat back on the back seat of that basement auditorium and wept all the way through. She was the one that this lady had been calling on for a year. And when people finally began to come to the altar, she got up and walked out. I remember my heart was so sad. I thought, uh, surely she's going to get saved. But her husband was waiting for her out in the car. He had told her, said, if you go down to church and you get religion and you like look like those women do, I'll leave you. I won't live with you. But she got so hungry for God, she went out and gave him the little baby and she came back in and prayed through and God, God got a hook in Max's jaw. God put him under old-fashioned Holy Ghost conviction and he began to wake her up at night and say, Gracie, wake up and pray for me. I'm afraid I'm going to die and drop into hell. And I remember... 
the day that he prayed through, and we went back to the factory. We worked in a factory with about 3,000 other people. We went back to the factory and began to tell that crowd out there that Matt Green had gotten saved, and a boy that had grown up with him down in Kentucky said, No way. He said the devil might have got saved, but he said Matt Green never got saved. But he did. He did. Lived for the Lord. Went home to heaven last February, I think it was. Choosing the better things. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But you don't have to be included in that. I'm not through, but I'm quitting. Let's stand, shall we? I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17 <laughs>